Hello, and welcome to Pause Pop, Positively Pop Culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Carrie Yesner. And I'm KW Taylor. We are still healthy and recording, and we hope that our little show brings you comfort in this uncertain time. Follow updates from cdc.gov and your state's Department of Health for accurate, up-to-date information on how you can avoid spreading COVID-19. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay inside, and stay positive. Today, we are talking about the TV series Better Things, the film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the pilot episode of the TV series 12 Monkeys. So, KW, you've been raving about Better Things, so tell me all about it, because I know nothing. Okay, so I noticed that on Hulu recently, they added everything that has ever been on FX. Maybe not everything, but like most things. And they didn't used to have everything from FX. So this was like a big, great media dump that happened a few weeks back. And I'd been wanting to watch Better Things. It's mostly a situation comedy, but they also kind of consider it a comedy drama. And it stars Pamela Adlon, who she's kind of a veteran character actress. She's actually been acting since she was a child, and she's now in her early 50s. People may know her from, she played a teenager in Greece too, and she also used to be on The Facts of Life, and she was on the sitcom Louie with Louis C.K. And this show is actually co-created by Adlon and Louis C.K., so there's a little, it's vaguely controversial, but let me reassure people who may be mad at Louis C.K. He does not ever appear on the show, and he stopped all involvement in it after season two. They actually fired him when all of his craziness came out, so... Rest assured, you can actually, I think, without guilt, enjoy this show, despite that early association. But the show revolves around Pamela's character is named Sam Fox, and she's a struggling working actress in Los Angeles. And she has three daughters, and she's a single mom. And her daughters are all like their mom. They all have kind of boy names. So the mom is Sam, and her daughters are named Max, Frankie, and Duke. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, Sam has a mom named Phyllis who's British and she lives in their neighborhood. And she's a little, she's a little loopy. And (laughs) Sam has a lot of friends and some exes and some current boyfriends and, and a variety of people who kind of wander in and out of her life. But she and the daughters are the only main characters that stay constant throughout the series. And the thing about the show is that it's not really about anything like it's just these little snapshots of life and each episode doesn't actually have a through plot line it's just sort of scenes and segments that only hang together in and of themselves if that makes Mm. sense yeah i'm not sure how i feel about that okay well like for an example there's a there's a running sort of jokey premise through one episode but it's not the main plot of one episode where Sam and her middle daughter, Frankie, are randomly playing pranks on each other. And they are just like stupid, like mom jokes, like they're dumb. (laughs) Like she tries to like, hang a a hat and coat on a on a hook in sight of her daughter when she comes out of her room, just to make it look scary. And then like she fake turns the power off in the house and stuff. And but it's not scary. And it's just dumb. And it's just like this moment of cute bonding between her and the kid. And Okay. There's other things like she gets invited to go on this very lavish vacation with a bunch of her friends. And she actually like, as soon as they get to this resort, she sort of like nopes out of it and has a car take her to a really ratty motel. And she just sits and imagines a perfect day 
on the beach with her kids without anybody else. And it's that's like not a plot, but it was like really beautifully shot and really sweet. And I think the main undercurrent is this is sort of like a family love story. So okay. it's very like they're also very angry with each other a lot of the time, too, because the daughters are all like, except for the littlest one, they're teenagers or preteens. And the mom is always pretty stressed out. So they have a lot of fights, but they also like really love each other. And it's just really wholesome. They have a couple of dogs who are really cute. And it's just, it's just feels really real. I don't know. Without being okay. a reality show and without being treacly and without being too edgy. Yeah. That reminds me a little bit of Bob's Burgers. Oh, okay. Because they're, they're strange and they, they do get upset with each other. But at the end of the day... They really do love each other and support each other. and th- But they're wacky at yeah. the same time. Yeah, so. yeah. Cool. Okay. There's um like some of Sam's friends are kind of wacky and she does have some strange things that happen in her work as an actress because she ends up on like, there's like clearly an episode where she's on a fake version of a Star Trek show and she's made up in kind of Klingon <laughs> makeup and stuff. And that's pretty funny. And like one of her friends is her manager who doesn't sometimes tell her about jobs and then one of her other friends is played by Lucy Davis, who's on The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina as one of the aunts. But here she looks totally normal and <laughs> and is just playing just her, her wacky friend. And so it's really, it's yeah, it's fun. I really dig okay. it. And there's a lot of like random semi-famous guest stars that show up. So that's kind of fun too. So yeah. And I'm only through most of season two and there's a total of four seasons each season okay. is only about 10 or so episodes, and it's just 30 minutes, so it's a nice quick little thing. Some people call it a bit of a black comedy, just because the stress level that sometimes happens in a busy full house is one of the key themes that comes up a lot. So don't watch it when you're feeling too stressed, but if you want to <laughs> kind of like in this in these days of, of semi-isolation that we're all suffering... It's kind of comforting to see not only sunshine because it's shot in LA, but also like a house full of people that aren't the people in your own house. So <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Well, I might check that out. Yeah. Try it out. See what you think. Okay. Neat. Thank you. You're welcome. And you recently saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I did. When did you see that? A couple weeks ago. Okay. Back when theaters were still open. Yeah. Hopefully that shows up on On Demand soon because I've been wanting to see that. Tell us about it. I feel like you would like it. It's a French language film, which is the first reason I think you would like it. You're also going to have to help me with these names. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> my accent is terrible. Okay. Well, I've never taken French, so. Uh. Yeah, so we, I saw it with my housemate a couple of weeks ago, and I've told you before that a lot of my movie watching habits nowadays tend to just be like really fun movies, mm-hmm. and this was a departure from that. It's a very artistic experience if that makes sense Uh okay it's directed by celine schiama Uh okay cool and it stars (laughs) (laughs) naomi merlant that's close enough i think it's probably it's probably naomi merlant but okay that's fine thank you she plays marianne (laughs) Uh and adele hanel i think that's probably correct yeah Okay, as Heloise and Luana Bajrami as Sophie. Yeah, that's okay. excellent. Good job. Oh, thank you. Très bien, très bien. Très bien. Okay, so I wanted to get that out of the way. It is a French language film, 
And the brief synopsis is that it's set in the 18th century. It's a period piece. A young painter named Marianne is commissioned to do the wedding portrait of Eloise without her knowing. So Marianne comes to this island. Maybe it's not an island. I don't know. They're on the coast. Okay. <laughs> it's not an island. They're just on the coast. <laughs> so Eloise's mother is from Milan. And she, when she got married, her family sent her, like, soon-to-be fiancé a portrait of her. And then off that, he decided if he wanted to marry her or not. And he did, and she moved to Brittany. And here, she's kind of doing the same thing for her daughter. So her daughter, this was going to happen to, recently fell off a cliff and died. Oh. Yeah. And there's some speculation on whether that was intentional or not but it it's sort of left up to you so eloise is her younger daughter and she gets brought home from the convent and basically put in her sister's place so they had a painter come and eloise was like this is bs i'm not doing it (laughs) (laughs) and that painter just like gets fed up and and just leaves uh so the mom engages marianne who is obviously a woman the first painter was a man and they come up with this scheme that marianne will pretend to be like a walking companion and she'll just like kind of take mental notes and then paint her paint eloise in the after hours so she's not really supposed to let eloise know that she's painting this portrait oh yeah so it's really interesting i it's hard to to know where to start i want to say that this film is beautiful it's set on the seacoast, and there are just beautiful shots of the ocean and the cliffside. And more than that, I mean, the setting is pretty limited. It's set in this house. It's set on the coast. And there's like one one or two scenes where they go elsewhere. But there's a lot of, I don't know if it's natural light, but there's a lot of natural light in the story, like sunshine. And, and it really just kind of brightens these interior, the interior set of this house. And the, like the walls are painted blue. And like, it's, I'm explaining it really poorly, but it was just really pretty to look at. Another thing I want to talk about is that there's no score in this movie. What? <laughs> yeah. I was like 45 minutes in and I was like, and I turned to my friend and I was like, has there been no music? So there is a little bit of music, but it's all diegetic music. Oh. So there's nothing. Yeah, there's no background score that has been composed and is playing against these against these scenes. There are th- exactly three instances of diegetic music. And the first is Marianne playing the harpsichord. Mm-hmm. And she plays, I believe it is the concerto number two for violin in G minor, opus eight. Something, something, something. I believe it's Vivaldi. I don't know why I did not write that down. <laughs> <laughs> so she plays the song and it shows up at the end when the two characters are at the orchestra. So those are two of the instances. And then in the middle of the movie, there is a group of women who sing an acapella song. And that's it. Whoa. Yeah. So part of me is like, how can you have a period drama without a lush romantic score? You yeah, know? Yeah. But... It really worked, and I read a little bit about the director, Celine Sciamma, talking about how she wanted to incorporate musicality within the scenes themselves. So it was about, like, 
where the characters are and and the the way they say their lines and one of the things that i really noticed was the click of their shoes on the floor because none of that is muted or dampened or anything because and there's no music to cover it so you just kind of hear them walking oh. yeah so i mean that was really interesting and the whole as we went through the movie i was just realizing more and more that this was so deliberately put together oh. you know yeah so i don't know yeah it was a really good it's a really good movie i've got a lot of points about it that i'm not i'm not gonna get into everything but it is a lot about women in art and there's some commentary on how women participate in art because they talk about the muse and the muse is silent um and marianne comments that she's not allowed to paint male models and that keeps women from representing men in art oh a lot yeah and there's also a lot about the act of looking and and seeing and perceiving each other and there's there's this really interesting scene where so finally, eventually, Marianne comes clean. Eloise agrees to sit for Mar- for the portrait. Marianne's painting, and she's looking at Eloise. And Eloise says, come, come over here. And Marianne does. And she looks back at where her easel is. And Eloise says, you know, if you're looking at me, who am I looking at? So it's just, it, it, it gave me kind of a lot to think about. Yeah. And one of the themes that's kind of wrapped up in in that seeing and perceiving is they have this kind of cute friendship. Well, maybe cute is not the right word, <laughs> but they have this. Well, <laughs> cause there's some heavy stuff that happens in the plot line with the servant, oh. but they have this kind of lovely friendship with the servant and they're all sitting around one night reading the story of Orpheus and, and Eurydice. So the whole story is that Orpheus goes to the underworld to get his wife back. And the terms are, Sure, you can t- you can take her back, but she's gonna walk behind you, and you can't look back at her. Yeah, and then he does at the end. So they have this big argument about about why he does it, mm-hmm. and oh, I can't remember how they they phrase it, but Eloise says maybe Eurydice is the one to make the choice. Maybe she says turn around, and that's how she takes the power back in that relationship. Like oh. she says, I'm going to define this. So. I'm telling you to turn around and you're going to look at me and we're going to have that moment forever. Oh. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, it is sad. Hey, I'm going to pause one second because uh, Hazel's like beating up my car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So sorry for the pause. But yeah, overall, it's a, it's a really interesting, beautiful, thought-provoking movie. And I really, I really do think that she would enjoy it. Cool. Yeah, it sounds good. Hopefully, if it does come on demand somewhere, I can check it out. I have not seen a good foreign language film in quite some time. And I did used to really, really love to see French films. And um, so I think that sounds like really good. I do have one question because sure. it seems like the title, I know that the term portrait of a whatever is kind of a cliche or, or regular phrase, but it just, the title reminds me of The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. And I just wondered if it had anything to do with that. Well, that's a hard question to answer because I haven't read that. Okay. <laughs> but it has a very literal meaning in the film. Okay, cool. Yeah. I will definitely watch it if I can. And then uh, I'll let you know if I find a reference to the Henry James novel. Okay, great. Now I'm thinking maybe I should read that. Yeah. 
Well, actually, this is a good transition because one thing that we were going to, we're going to talk about 12 monkeys next. And I don't know if in your research, this was obvious to you, but 12 monkeys, the original film from 1995 is actually based on a 1962 French film. I did not know that. Yes. So this is a perfect, perfect transition. So let me give you some background of that. And then we can transition into talking about the movie a little bit and mostly the TV series. But the original inspiration for 12 Monkeys, it's a 1962 French science fiction film. It's a featurette. So it's only about a half an hour long. So it's a little longer than a short film, but it's it's not a full theatrical length film Um, directed by Chris Marker. And it's called La Jetée, which means the jetty. And it specifically refers to part of a pier at an airport. And it's specifically the Orly Airport um, in Paris. And that film is sort of similar to what you see in the 12 Monkeys TV show, but it's much more compact. And it just has to do with a guy who's a prisoner in the aftermath of a post-apocalyptic event in Paris. And he's sent back in time to try to like fix the future basically okay but when he was little he remembers being on the jetty at orly airport and seeing this woman whose face ends up sort of enmeshed in his memory and he can't ever really shake the look of her face but in observing this woman he also kind of witnesses us a weird incident that he doesn't really understand as a child but when he grows up he kind of figures out oh i think a guy got killed right then Oh, well, and through the I'll I'll spoil just this little short film, but it later comes out, he goes back in time, he finds this woman that he had seen as a kid, he has a romance with her. And then he, like, ends up getting chased through the Orly airport by these (gasps) bad guys. And it's it was his own death that he witnessed as a child. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I haven't actually seen the whole thing. The other thing that's weird about La Jetée is that it's shot almost entirely in still images with just narration over it. Oh. So it doesn't have a normal... It was done on a very small budget, but it's it's was purposely done that way, though, in order to like symbolize how the main character viewed this woman's face as like a frozen image in time and how mm-hmm. looking at photographs is essentially a form of time travel in and of itself. And some people call this film like a visual novel because it just sort of... It's it's sort of told to you and you just only have visuals to really go by. You don't have any other sensory detail. That is so interesting. Okay. I would like to watch it. Yeah, I think I think it might be on like various streaming things like YouTube and stuff. Okay. But I watched a little trailer for it and it is very beautiful um, and very sad and spooky. So it's lovely. We love spooky. We do love spooky. But that was the basis of the 1995 American neo-noir film 12 monkeys directed by terry gilliam which very much expands upon that concept makes it a lot more detailed and then that is then the basis of the tv series which is what we watched Mm -hmm. it was our pilot watch and i i chose it because okay (laughs) so i actually watched this when it was on oh okay yeah it aired on sci-fi from 2015 to 2018 and I hadn't seen it in a while. And I was thinking, I've been thinking about it for a couple months, like, oh, that's something I, I kind of want to rewatch. And then COVID-19 happened. So it's a little bit of a strange atmosphere in which to watch it. Yeah. You know how we, we try to pick pilots that neither of us have seen. Yeah. 
but I actually did not remember a lot about this. So it's basically like I never saw it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the later the later seasons much better. Mm-hmm. So do you want to start with a synopsis? Yeah, well, and I had never seen the TV show. I had seen the film when it first came out, but I didn't really remember much about it. The movie was very, very highly acclaimed in 1995 when it came out. And Brad Pitt was in it. He has a supporting character and he was nominated for an Academy Award. Oh. It starred Bruce Willis as the Cole character. And the doctor character was played by Madeline Stowe. And then Brad Pitt actually plays the Emily Hampshire character. Okay, gotcha. In a, in a gender swap. So Okay, neat. I haven't seen the film, so... Yeah. We can go with like a, a little synopsis of the first episode. So this is a futuristic kind of dystopian science fiction show, but it's also, I love me a time travel thing. I'm all about... I know you do. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I, I will say this does have to do with a pandemic, but I was pleasantly surprised. I was really kind of dreading watching this in today's climate, but I was very comforted watching it because I was like, oh, this has so much more to do with time travel than it does a pandemic, thank goodness. <laughs> so at least the first episode, I don't know if it stays that way. But yeah, it mostly focuses on the time travel. There are a couple episodes that you witness some pandemic like scenes, but okay. it, that's definitely not the focus. That's yeah. good. Yeah, that really comforted me. So yeah, I mean, it starts in the year 2043, saying that there's been an apocalyptic thing. And it talks about a reset switch. Our main our main character, Cole, is seen taking this wristwatch off of a skeleton, basically, in a building that looks like it might have been originally part of the CDC. Yeah, I think so. And then we jump back to 2013, where we start with the image of that same watch. And we find out that it belongs to Dr. Cassandra Rayleigh, who is giving a talk about basically being prepared for the next epidemic or pandemic. And then after her talk, she gets in her car and Cole is now in 2013 and he, he doesn't, he kind of kidnaps her. (laughs) He doesn't want to hurt her. He wants information on someone named Leland Frost and Cassandra does not know who he's talking about. Yeah. And he takes her to this like warehouse just to get them off the road because clearly she was on the phone with her boyfriend when she got kidnapped and he called the police. And so now the police are actively searching for her. So they go hide out in this warehouse. And in order to prove, I thought this scene was really, really interesting. He tries to prove he's from the future by showing her her own watch that he took in 2043 off her corpse, which is very dark. And... <laughs> He and she's like, that looks like my watch. And he's like, this is your watch. And he scratches the watch that she's wearing. And the scratch shows up on the crystal of the other watch. Yeah, which is pretty neat. Yeah. So they're surrounded by police and Cole actually gets shot. And as he's like bleeding out, yeah. <laughs> he says, you know, look, if you believe me, if you believe that I'm telling the truth and I'm from the future and I'm trying to stop this pandemic, two years from today in Philadelphia, meet me at this hotel and find me and then he disappears yeah <laughs> he goes back to 2043 which which i thought narratively i felt like that was a pretty good hook yeah now let me ask yeah. you because she obviously she does go two years later to the hotel and waits for him but would you have gone like you watched i mean you, she saw him disappear but i kept thinking yeah. oh my gosh what would i have done if that was me would i have actually gone that's so interesting would you have I don't know, because he also did kidnap her, and it was pretty traumatic. I don't know if I would have gone. 
I don't know. I feel like if I knew that I was in a story, I would go. But (laughs) in the the actual world, I don't think I would go. Yeah. I mean, she was meeting him at a hotel. It's public. It's in like the lobby of the hotel. Maybe she figured, oh, I just, I guess I'll just go. And if he's not, but she waits for him for a week. He doesn't actually show up on the actual date, but she does stay at the hotel for a whole week. And then he does show up um, and he still has a gunshot wound. Yeah, because it's only been a couple of minutes for him. Yeah. And it's been two years for her. Yeah. I don't know why, but I love that. That was really wild. And she has to end up like, it's good that she's a doctor because she ends up taking him up to her room and like tending to his gunshot wound for a couple of days while he recovers. But mm-hmm. we learn in that little period, there's a flashback of him getting recruited by a scientist in his time where he, she gives him an injection and this causes him to be able to do time travel, which they call splintering. And it's apparently very painful, which is not... I mean, actually, when I've wrote, written about time travel in my time travel novel, I don't describe it <laughs> not to... Plug. 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 If everyone's home and bored and would like to read a fun time travel novel, I highly recommend The Curiosity Killers, my <laughs> 2016 time travel novel. Anyway, but in that, I mean, I did describe it as being somewhat disorienting and it can Mm -hmm. be painful and i can i mean i don't know how they describe it in star trek novels of beaming but it's when you're doing it without a machine which is how 12 monkeys does it it, you're using your own body as a time machine so i can imagine it would be painful but i think that is still an interesting way of describing it and just the word splintering sounds painful doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it does. I just imagine your body like breaking up into tiny little pieces yeah. and then getting put back together. Well, but. I think that's also why in the Terminator franchise that they can only send organic matter back and why if you want to bring inorganic material, you have to put it in your body. Yes. Which is so gross, but interesting too. Very gross. <laughs> so scientists in his time found this Project Splinter which they used to send him back, but it was started in the present time of 2015. Mm -hmm. And they had this recording of Cassandra telling them that the pandemic was started by a man named Leland Frost. So Cassie actually gave Cole the mission, which I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. I like time loop. Yes, it was. So it was like a found audio recording of her that they, they found in 2043, giving him the instructions. But it was a little bit broken up. They couldn't get all the words. It was a little like the file was corrupted. So it's a little bit unclear um, exactly what she meant. But yeah, time loops. And this whole episode had a lot to do with paradoxes, which we'll get into a little bit later. But yeah, I also think that was cool. So actually, in the intervening two years, Cassie has been looking for Leland Frost. And the reason they couldn't find him and her friend Jeremy ends up finding him is that his name is actually Leland Goins and his like it was like his code name for the agency that was looking for him or something okay i don't know that i did (laughs) not love that element i thought that was kind of dumb honestly okay okay that's fair (laughs) (laughs) well it's like did she use that code name in the recording on purpose but if so that made it take longer for them to end up finding who the guy really was like why didn't she just say his real name on the recording i don't know anyway I don't know. I'd have to go back and hear how the transmission was broken up because mm-hmm. she might have said like Leland Goins, codename Frost. Or yeah, something like yeah, true. I don't know. And they just misinterpreted it. True. But anyway, they find him and they realize he's going to this party and Cole and Cassie get all dressed up and 
they make it in because Cassie's ex-boyfriend is there and they have a little bit of a fight over her behavior in the past two years because he clearly doesn't believe that she was visited by a time traveler. Well, I guess I should say that they had a discussion on the way to the party that Cole was just like, my mission is to kill this guy. And Cassie's the one who's like, wait, how is that? Like, are we sure that's going to stop things? Uh Back to the party, Cole does try to kill him. And obviously that doesn't work because you got to put conflict in things. Well, he says that if he... If he kills Leland Goines, that he, Cole, will disappear and time will reset and he will stop existing. And she's a little sad about that. But then it also means that the pandemic will be stopped. Yeah. So Cole and Cassie get arrested and on their way, they're in the police cars and they get taken by Leland's people. And they get taken to this like underground research facility where Leland is highly interested in Cole because he met Cole in 1987 when Cole looked exactly the same as he does now. And he says that in 1987, Cole was looking for the army of the 12 monkeys that ends the world. And this is new information to Cole. So it's in Leland's past, but Cole's future. And then in an effort to try to escape, because they basically say that Leland's people are going to take him apart to study him and kill him but he tries to buy some time and puts cassie's watch from the present and her watch from the future next to each other to demonstrate a paradox and it ends up causing kind of uh like both watches go crazy when they're touched together because it creates a paradox and it's a lot of fancy special effects then it looks really cool (laughs) (laughs) and i also want to say that i watched this with closed captions on And it uses one of the best sound effects I've ever seen, which is ethereal clunk. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that. And my friend Erin loved it, too. She's been watching this this show, too. (laughs) That's funny. So the paradox causes kind of a time slowdown for everyone but Cole. And Cole takes Cassie out of there. There's an explosion. Leland is not quite dead. So he comes out into the hallway and, and tries to shoot. Cole, but Cole ends up shooting Leland and Leland dies, but Cole doesn't. This is when Cole does not disappear. Yeah. And they're like, oh, shoot, we have everything wrong. Yeah. And so he goes back to his own future and tells the scientist uh, about the army of the 12 monkeys. And they have all these like the boards up in their science lab that looks like conspiracy theory boards where you're like, (laughs) you know, it's got articles and pictures and news items all over these things. And suddenly he notices this logo spray painted on various like walls and stuff in these pictures depicting the pandemic. And it looks like a little circle of red little monkeys in a circle. And he thinks that that's the logo of the army of the 12 monkeys. And they'd never really noticed that before, probably thinking it was just random graffiti. Then it back in 2015, a man comes to tell Leland's daughter that Leland is dead and she her name is Jennifer and she's in a psychiatric facility and the last shot of the episode is we see her drawing the 12 monkeys logo on the wall and then the episode ends and let me just that's Emily Hampshire who is Stevie Bud on Schitt's Creek yes and she's fantastic 
it's very sad that she was only in this episode for a, a couple of seconds, but she really does become the best, most eccentric thing about this show. So if you keep watching it, I ho- and I hope you do, I hope you will tell me your feelings on on Jennifer Goins. Well, it's funny. I mean, I'm wa- I'm watching Shit's Creek through for the second time with my husband, and he actually watched this pilot with me. And at the end, and I knew she was in it, but I didn't know anything about who she played. But we were both like, oh my gosh, it's Stevie. She's crazy. (laughs) And she's so creepy looking. And it was hilarious. Yeah. And I think we are going to keep watching it for sure. Because again, I loved that it was, it was relevant to today's world, but it also did not dwell on that element. And so it makes me feel kind of like, hey, if we like nail time travel, we can maybe solve this thing. (laughs) So it gave me a weird, but but in my research on Le Jeté, the the fatalist in me is like, ooh, something is really going to go wrong here with their their attempts to save the world. I don't know. You never know. But I, f- I feel like, not to bring your hopes down, but <laughs> if this parallels the real world, then time travel won't be invented for another 40 years. <laughs> oh, darn it. Okay. Yeah. So what what did you think about it? I really liked it. I thought that Amanda Scholl as Cassandra, I thought also thought they changed her name from the movie. And I also think that calling her Cassandra is a little on the nose, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what was her name in the movie? Um, it was as Catherine Rayleigh. Okay. But Bruce Willis was James Cole. And then Brad Pitt was Jeffrey Goines instead of Jennifer. Okay. And Leland Goines was played by Christopher Plummer. And... Oh. Yeah, so uh, I thought Amanda Scholl reminded me of a young Nicole Kidman. I did not really love Aaron Stanford. I thought he was a little, I don't know, he was just kind of, his acting was a little bland. He was not that dynamic of a of an actor. But the plot and the pacing, it was all very fast paced. And it was very, it kept me riveted. And even though it felt like like I could tell it was from a couple years ago, but I still thought the effects were pretty good and the music was good. And and yeah, I don't think it was, from what I remember about the film, I don't feel like this had the same dark, whimsical, slightly surreal tone to it. Mm-hmm. That didn't bother me. I thought it was still really good. It, it made me think of Timeless or Sarah Connor, you know, a really good mid-2000s sci-fi piece. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to keep watching it for sure. That's awesome. I have already kept watching it. I'm on episode four. I think I am watching it very slowly. I remember when this was on, it took me into season two to really, to really get into it. Mm -hmm. And I think season two, it it found its feet a little bit more. But from what I remember, I mean, I, I ended up loving a lot of the characters. So I, I feel like Cole gets better as a character. Okay. But, you know, that could just be my opinion. So we'll see what you think about that. Well, here's a here's a, a telling thing. He reminded me a lot of the guy who plays Quentin on The Magicians. And I hated him in season one. <laughs> and by the end of the most recent season, I was like, he's great. So I hope that I that this guy grows on me too. I think he's just, okay. he's very, very different from Bruce Willis's interpretation of the character. So that is something gotcha. that I remembered. But, you know, it's a different take on similar material. And I I might, after I, I'm going to watch through the whole series, and then I might go back and watch the film. But I do think that you should go back and watch La Jete and see what you think of that. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting because you have a lot of, you have a lot of opinions relative to the movie, which I have not seen. Mm-hmm. 
So it'll be interesting. I might want to watch that after I'm done with done rewatching the show. Yeah. And we can, I can watch Legite as well. Yeah. So yeah, interesting. I'm glad you mostly like it. I do. And oh, yeah, I, I definitely do like it. I think um, if, if Emily um, Hampshire's character is that cool, it's too bad that she was only in at the very, very end. But I also see saving your really cool character for that kind of reveal. And it reminds me the way they did that element of the pilot kind of reminds me of what they did with the Star Trek Discovery pilot, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, where you kind of don't get to the meat of what the real show is about until practically episode two. So, mm-hmm. yeah. My memory is not that great to to know if, if the tone changes a lot between season one and season two, and that's part of why I like season two a lot more. Mm. But I do remember that Jennifer becomes a really good character. Emily Hampshire is a great actress. She's got great comedic timing and a lot of other skills. And I think too, again, I don't, I haven't seen the film, so I don't know how dark it goes, but I think as the show goes on, they really learn to kind of rely on their characters' relationships and the fact that, you know, their impetus for saving the world is saving each other. And it's, 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 it gets more focused on like humanity and in connections to other people and stuff like that. That's cool. So next time, we're going to talk about the Netflix series, I Am Not Okay With This, uh, the graphic novel Orphan Black Deviations, and we'll also discuss the new fiction anthology that we're both involved in. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And you can find me at Carrie Gessner. And you can find us together on Twitter at Podcast. If you'd rather email us, you can do that at PositivelyPopCulture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop.